This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. President Joe Biden remains under fire for a botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. Reports of mass crowds and violence at Kabul airport underscore the desperation of those who are being seen as collaborators with the U.S., and the Western-backed Afghan government. The Taliban has warned of dire consequences if U.S. troops remain beyond August 31st in their evacuation efforts. And as of Tuesday, the group has actually said that it will now restrict access to the airport. Meanwhile, there are reports of the warlord resistance to the Taliban in the northern Panjshir Valley and fears of a new civil war breaking out. Former U.S.-backed Afghan President Hamid Karzai is in talks to hand over power to the Taliban. The U.S. war in Afghanistan cost more than 200,000 lives and $2 trillion. Today, as an expert and author on Afghanistan, I'll be exploring how the war was doomed from the start with my colleague and longtime foreign policy expert, Rahul Mahajan. Rather than an interview-style format, Rahul and I will be engaging in a dialogue about the war. Rahul is the author of two books on the Iraq War, Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin River Falls and has been our foreign policy and empire correspondent. Welcome back, Rahul. Great to be with you again, Sonali. Let me just mention that uh, the first book, The New Crusade, actually the most extended section is about the Afghanistan war. It was written in the first few months of it. So of course it only covers that period, but um, uh, I think it's still, uh, uh, there's plenty in, that, in there to, uh, to, to you know, review. And of course, we are coming upon the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, which comes just weeks before the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Afghan war, which predated, which which came just before the Iraq war started. And many, of course, talked about uh, at that time, you and I were and, and, and most observers knew that Afghanistan and the U.S. going into Afghanistan was a way to buy time before the Bush administration, then Bush administration could make a case for going into Iraq. So here we are almost 20 years later. Um, it feels as though if the U.S. actually wanted to carry out a successful invasion and occupation, it could have done it very differently, regardless of what one's position on an invasion and occupation is. There were people who were pro-war, many of us who were anti-war. But if the U.S. wanted to, it could have carried out an invasion and occupation in a more organized fashion, in, with more forethought, with long-term views. And every step of the way, it botched it, including, it seems, in the withdrawal. What do you think? Well, yes, and I mean, I think this is one of the things that has uh, somewhat bothered me about a lot of the left reaction. There's all of this sort of, it was inevitable, I knew it was going to fail from the first minute, etc. And frankly, a lot of that is is playing into uh, I, one of two things. One is sort of these Orientalist conceptions of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, and the other as some notion that you know Western counterinsurgency never works, and and, and that's not true. It often works at the very least from uh, with regard to the the goals of the Western country, the United States or Britain. It is in this case, it seemed like a particularly easy challenge. I mean, counterinsurgency is effectively 
you know, once you get beyond the kinetic phase of dropping a lot of bombs, it's supposedly, at least in the in the, the minds of military strategists, an exercise in competitive governance. And who was the who was the the competitor in Afghanistan? It was the Taliban, perhaps the group in all of modern history least suited to govern a, a nation, right? And yet. Uh, uh, you know, the, the United States reduced the Taliban almost to zero to the point of their essentially wanting to negotiate surrender terms. And yet somehow, 20 years later, the Taliban uh, came back. It survived a withering counterinsurgency and managed to outlast the United States through, you know, constant new a flood of constant new recruits, among other things. And of course, you know, it, 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 it really sheds light on the fact that uh, it's not just a matter of whether this was theoretically possible, but whether the United States and the particular conceptions it had of how you run a country as of 2001 was actually suited for the job. It uh, It's pretty remarkable to see the Taliban coming back into power uh, just weeks after the U.S. withdrew. It feels like watching the beginning of the war in reverse, because I recall those times when the U.S. you know, forces invaded Kabul and the Taliban fled. They fell with stunning speed. And there was sort of shock about the war ending, uh, or rather the Taliban's rule ending. And then, you know, nearly 20 years later, this similar shock about the Taliban coming in. But for those who'd been paying attention, the Taliban hadn't uh, just been this rebel group uh, fighting in the margins and carrying out suicide attacks. They were doing all of that. They were also, of course, uh, creating a lot of and, and uh, legitimizing themselves in the Afghan eyes of the Afghan public for many years. And then starting in something like 2012 or 2013, were the U.S.'s partner in a withdrawal from the country and the U.S. withdrawing from the country. Right. And it seems as though if the U.S. in wanting to delegitimize this supposed enemy force, then turned to that force and that force alone in order to remove itself from the country, it was essentially validating this so-called enemy and saying, all right, we're giving you the reins of power. They didn't include the Afghan government. They didn't include the corrupt and flawed government that, that they built up until the very last minute. And then, of course, we saw what happened with Ashraf Ghani, the current president, fleeing and essentially the Taliban walking away with this massive, well-funded army that the United States taxpayers have paid for. Uh, any freezing of the Taliban assets are looking already like they're going to simply impact the economy of the country and are simply going to hurt individuals. So Rahul, we shouldn't be surprised that the Taliban is back in power today because effectively the U.S., enabled them for many years, right? Well, okay. So, I mean, that if you periodize the war, right? So by, by the end of 2001, the Taliban are, uh, are pretty thoroughly defeated and there's very little insurgent activity for a couple of years in Afghanistan. And, and of course, during this time, it's not like, so the, the ISI, Pakistan's ISI still continues to try to uh, you know, hold meetings, rally together. This uh, is the intelligence forces that were credited with essentially helping form the Taliban in Pakistan. Yes, 
Yes. So they, they continue to do that, but they don't really reemerge until 04, 05. They, they're growing steadily through this period. Uh, with the Obama surge in particular from about 2009 to 2012, the U.S. military hits them as hard as it can. Okay, so, so over those years, the estimates that I've seen are that the Taliban was suffering 20 to 30% attrition per year. All right, so they're losing tens of thousands of fighters uh, in a year at this point, and yet they survived it. And at the end of that period, they're stronger than they were before. And at that point, as you as you suggest, the United States they do this funny thing where they're sort of giving up without realizing themselves that they're giving up. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that if you look at Vietnam. Uh, the, when there was talk about negotiations, the big sticking point for the uh, NLF and the North Vietnamese was that they did not want the South Vietnamese government included in talks and the US insisted on including the South Vietnamese government. Here, as you, as you say, the United States actually uh, um, uh, you know, kept the Af Afghan government out from the beginning, which suggests several things. One of which was that either they had incredible illusions about how the Afghan government was going to uh, to somehow manage to hold on after they were gone, uh, or they had just decided to dismiss them and hand over the country to the Taliban. I think the truth is probably that there was a, a lot of confusion and conflicting imperatives among the Americans. And of course, as you say, the result was that at every stage they uh, enabled the Taliban. However, I might differ with you in, in thinking that I, I don't really see uh, how an alternative force uh, uh, could have prevailed instead of the Taliban. I mean, one thing the US could have done purely from their own perspective is to basically withdraw, forget about the Afghan government and to try to do what some people are saying they should do now, which is pick their own favorite warlords and prop them up against the Taliban. And let's and let's talk about let's talk about that because you're right if the Taliban are the force most capable at this point of taking the reins of power because the Afghan government ridden with warlords apparently was not um it would have made sense of the uh, US was going to enable the Taliban to leave in 2013 instead of being in talks for this long, prolonging the war for this long. And under Trump, of course, we saw civilian casualties dramatically rise because while Trump was dealing with the Taliban, he also increased um, the bombings. And we had a huge spike in uh, casualties, I believe it was 2017. Um, but going to your point to who the alternative forces were that could hold power, this is another part of the US's botched approach to the Afghan government. The same person, the same American, he's an Afghan-American, Zalmay Khalilzad, this U.S. Special Envoy to Afghanistan, who in the early 2000s and after 2001, invited the so-called Northern Alliance, the Afghan anti-Taliban warlord forces into the government, was then heading the U.S. negotiations and representing the U.S. negotiations with the Taliban. And in 2001-2002, Zalmay Khalilzad's approach was, um, we cannot have justice, we need, because that's too difficult, we will have peace before justice, which is, let's sweep all the crimes of the anti-Taliban Mujahideen warlords under the rug in the interest of having 
a peaceful, democratic government because these men are somehow going to change their ways. Uh, and of course, that was a big failure. Um, they continued their corrupt ways. They siphoned off millions of tax dollars. They did not govern. They ensured that women were um, targeted and, and kept out of uh, government. And uh, that in itself was a big failure of the Af of the U.S. in the in the Afghan government. Now we're seeing a new generation of these the so-called Northern Alliance warlords, Ahmed Massoud, who's the son of the warlord Ahmed Shah Massoud, writing an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that the anti-Taliban resistance is here and that he needs the help of the Americans in fighting the Taliban. An absolute repeat of the years before the U.S. invaded. Um, and it's really, you know, I don't know if the U.S. will once more try to legitimize the Northern Alliance, but uh, it is really appalling to see this happen over and over again. And I guess figures like Zalmay Khalilzad and the U.S. State Department diplomats, whoever they are engaging in this, are relying on American ignorance of the fact that we just keep picking these different sides in Afghanistan and none of them are you know, any representation of secular democracy, which was, of course, what they were constantly holding up, not secular democracy, but at least democracy and women's rights, which is what they were holding up as, as somehow being engaged in. So, yeah, this this anti-Taliban resistance, do you think that the U.S. is going to in any way try to legitimize them once more? Well, maybe with words, OK, but I don't think that the U.S. is going to do very much to support them. I mean, I, I, again, there's a lot of, uh, you know, fevered speculation uh, about things like this. But um, the, the United States has withdrawn somewhat precipitously from Afghanistan, indicating strongly that it doesn't want to be entangled there anymore. All right. So uh, any realistic assessment they can make uh, will show that even if they funnel some arms and some money to Ahmed Massoud, he doesn't have any strong prospects. I mean, honestly, I, it, it's hard to know very much about him. He's, he's kind of a cipher, but there's no reason to assume that he can somehow uh, resurrect the, the sort of legendary charismatic leadership of his father, right? He's mostly an expatriate. He's been back in Afghanistan for a few years now, and he is obviously desperately trying to uh, become uh, some kind of new political entrepreneur. But I feel that it's likely that even with the help of French philosophers like Bernard-Henri Lévy, that he is not going to get very, very far in that. And I guess one point that you brought up that, that makes me think is if we think about uh, how you might actually have tried to build an Afghan government that had some legitimacy, I mean, I think we've we got to start with the fact that the United States because it was easy, relied on expatriates, all right? They picked up people, Hamid Karzai, later Ashraf Ghani. Uh, these are people who were not uh, particularly in the thick of uh, living and dealing in Afghanistan. Uh, and then of course, the, to support those expatriates, they picked up warlords. I understand, frankly, why they picked up warlords, because you need you need the government to have some sort of association with the ability to project force. But even though it seemed like the easy, simple thing to do in order, in order to cobble together a government, uh, what, what happens is that you did not manage to build up any indigenous elements who actually had... Uh, you know, were really grounded and rooted in the society and ready to make the compromises that might be 
necessaries to to you know to to put an end to two decades of uh, of war and chaos, and that simply didn't happen. Later on, you saw the reemergence of dynamics that you know the the one formula that has been sort of put about for Afghanistan since the 90s at least is to to create what's called a broad-based government, which is to say one in which the different ethnicities are properly represented and um, and uh, protected. In particular, one that both Pashtun and Tajik, the two do dominant uh, ethnic groups in Afghanistan, uh, uh, work together and, and actually um, uh, serve both populations. And whatever sort of gestures the US made towards that were quickly undone. And frankly, we had, we had Karzai and even Morgani running on sort of uh, Pashtun supremacist platforms. And so uh, uh, that, that possibility of actually creating buy-in even from Tajiks for the government was, was pretty much uh, a short change right from the beginning. So right. I, I, there, were, there were not that many elements in Afghanistan to work with, but there was actually more diversity politically and otherwise to work with than there was in, say, Iraq after the fall of Saddam, because Afghanistan had had these very different competing kinds of political factions over the last 20 years, but very and little attention was paid to that. Right. There, was more, there were more options in 2001 than there are today. It was such a, a squandered opportunity. Um, and you're, I think you're right about pointing out the fact that Afghanistan is a very diverse country with uh, numerous ethnic groups and ethnic minorities. The majority is the Pashto population, which uh, you know is, is a big part of Afghanistan. There's also a huge Pashto population in Pakistan. And of course, if you go back into history, it was a British uh, empire that drew the line that cut that, mine, that uh, ethnic group into two across two countries for, you know, in, in ways that have been replicated in other parts of the, the former British empire. And it's, I'm wondering what uh, role that Pashtu supremacism plays in former President Hamid Karzai's role now. He was brought in by the U.S. government to be the interim Afghan uh, president, won re-election, and is now basically, you know, unrolling the welcome mat to the Taliban, and, and I think he's, you know, thinks he's being pragmatic about it. But one, one thing I wanted to bring up to you, Rahul, which sort of led to me inviting you to join on the show today is that the American left has not had very many good answers on Afghanistan right from the beginning. And, and we see a lot of pontificating and even in recent days with the fall of the Afghan government and the return of the Taliban, a um, lot of uh, sort of, quick and slick answers that some on the left are throwing up, you know, the meme responses to why it all failed, showing that there is not just a, a deep ignorance in the American public about what's been happening in Afghanistan, but frankly, on the American left as well, right? Well, yeah, and I, I'm not going to name names, I, I think, <laughs> but uh, you, it's amazing to see the ignorance being manifested even by sort of icons of American left activism. And here, I mean, I guess we're probably both talking about, you know, the more or less the radical left, not, not just, the, you know, not the Democratic Party, which also has its own kind of ignorance. Yeah, so you see all these memes about uh, how Reagan met with the Taliban, uh, kind of ignoring, ignoring the, the fact that, of course, the Taliban arose in the 90s. And the first thing they did was 
was actually certainly in their own in their own sort of legends uh, put put a stop to many of the abuses by uh, the the ruling factions of the mujahideen that had that had won the anti-soviet war but also pointing out that i mean uh, on the one hand uh, you know i think it's it, it's interesting it's not clear that it's a it's really uh, something for us to to really push on but most sympathetic observers of Afghanistan, they certainly blame the U.S. for its supporting the Mujahideen in the 80s, but they also blame it for its complete abandonment of Afghanistan after the Soviets withdrew and then later the communist government fell. It is that sort of uh, governance vacuum that was created with also basically a resource vacuum, economic crisis, etc., that uh, that that allowed the emergence of the Taliban. Right. So, I mean, the, the uh, U.S. left weapons, though. That was the one resource they did leave in the hands of the warlords. Yes. And they made some half-hearted attempts to do like a stinger buyback program and so on, but it didn't it didn't get very far. Um, so the, yeah, they left they left these uh, mujahideen factions in possession of weaponry that they used, for example, to level Kabul and back and forth internecine squabbling. Um, but they didn't actually, there was no aid, there was no uh, uh, engagement with anything that involved the, the welfare of uh, Afghans. And the other kind of strain that you see a lot is this sort of, I mean, there, you know, there's kind of a restart, resurgent Stalinism. I hesitate to use the word because it seems so politically irrelevant today. And yet part of the narrative here is, you know, um, the the Soviet the, the communists sorry the Afghan communists were wonderful the Soviets were doing the best they could to preserve Afghanistan and cue photos of women in mini skirts and Kabul exactly and the and the mujahideen basically were created by the United States and it's 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 simply completely untrue you know that the as I've been pointing out to people the the communist government that emerged that was that was run by the the more extreme faction of the the PDPA which is the Afghan Communist Party was brutal and it's it, frankly it's part of the history of as of you know uh, of communist uh, uh, governments nascent communist governments that you see a lot of repression and in the case of Afghanistan you're talking about tens of thousands of people killed and put in prison yes they they pushed forward uh, uh, seemingly enlightened social programs, but they did them in a way that was often problematic and certainly not helpful. And it was part of, a, you know, an old school idea of let's bring moder modernization at the end of the barrel of a gun. And uh, it was not unnatural that there would be resistance. Uh, and when you, when you add in the ideological factors, I mean, the ground reality today is still, it's very easy to talk to an Afghan and say, uh, they're bringing atheism or, or infidels are occupying the country and uh, we have to fight to defend the faith. Uh, and frankly, there, a lot of it was that. Now, they wouldn't have been able to do what they did against the Soviets without U.S. arms and funding. But to somehow suggest that they were a completely fake creation, the way that a lot of people are now, uh, or that... Uh, Afghanistan would have been a paradise if the Khalki government, that's the radical faction of the PDPA, had been allowed to continue, or that the Soviet Union didn't kill a million Afghans in, in its occupation. Yes. Estimates are between one and one and a half 
million civilian deaths under the Soviets in the period 1979 to 1988. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, and, and, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously the vast majority of Afghan deaths during the Soviet occupation were, were, uh, were killed by, you know, Soviet bombardment, artillery, et cetera. So uh, it's not like the Soviets went in there with some diabolical notion of killing a lot of Afghans, but like a lot of occupying powers, they slipped into it. And it, it, it's just a fact. It's not, it's, it, and it is still the defining reality of what shaped Afghanistan. And if you want to blame the United States for the emergence of the Taliban, and it shares a considerable amount of blame, I don't know how you can blame the Soviet Union too. It's just the way that the Khmer Rouge emerged after the, you know, the incredible uh, ceaseless bombing of of Cambodia by the United States in the early 70s. I want to go back to the uh, photograph that you mentioned of Reagan with the uh, meeting with the Taliban. This has been showing up in social media photograph of Reagan meeting with what people claim are the Taliban. And of course, they're not. They're not the Taliban. The Taliban did not exist until the early 90s in response to the civil wars uh, in the infighting that was being fought by by men that you know the kind that Reagan was meeting with in fact he was meeting with the mujahideen leaders these were the jihadi leaders that the US armed um to fight the soviets and and whether or not these, you know, even if one agrees that the Mujahideen weren't the creation of the United States, the fact is that the U.S. armed them, the CIA armed them, and was very happy to watch them essentially drag the Soviet Union into a war that the U.S. hoped would um, weaken the Soviets, right? I mean, the idea was that uh, if the Soviet Union could be embroiled in a war, just as the U.S. was embroiled in the Vietnam War, then it might be weakened, no matter the cost, no matter the civilian cost. And let's maybe wrap up our conversation talking about, well, how should we be thinking about Afghanistan? Shouldn't we be trying to look at this debacle? And there are no easy solutions um, shouldn't we be trying to look at it through the lens of the interests of the Afghan people, the well-being of the Afghan people? What are the ways in which one can minimize civilian casualties? There has just been too much war for too many years, decades and decades of war. Forget about a 20-year-old knowing nothing but war. A 40-year-old in Afghanistan knows nothing but war, essentially, from their birth, right? Yeah, so I, I would just you know have two points. One, f- with regard to the the United States. I mean, I don't know if you noticed the uh, the uh, Inspector General uh, for Afghan Reconstruction recently uh, said something like, you know, it was our arrogance and thinking we could turn Afghanistan into a little Norway. Hmm. And you know what? The United States, no sub part of it, no significant political uh, grouping has any interest in turning any part of the United States into a little Norway. <laughs> You know what? So so forget about those, not just the the fantasies of doing it, but the sort of ridiculous language of self-justification. It's simply not uh, something the United States does anywhere these days. And to pretend that that good intentions had some part of the U.S. intervention is just going to 
keep us from learning any lessons. The first of which should be that the United States needs to stop uh, intervening militarily. And although, frankly, I think for now, not forever, but for now, that is a lesson well learned, except when it comes to things that have zero cost to the US like drone strikes. And second, uh, and you might disagree with me about this here, I think the United States has really uh, destroyed its leverage with regard to Afghanistan, has given the Taliban a great sense of triumph, and has to understand that anything it does or says about the welfare of the Afghan people now is, got, is going to be done from a position in which the, the Taliban are in control. If you start hectoring them, if you try to coerce them, then if you try to apply the stick with various kinds of sanctions, they are simply going to dig in. They are not amenable to changing, especially their, their base policies. I mean, apparently Germany said that if the Taliban Institute Sharia, some sort of funding is going to be cut off. I mean, it, to tell the Taliban not to institute Sharia is simply a, a meaningless statement. It's, it's not even, uh, it, it frankly doesn't even compute for them. Uh, and of course, uh, it would be like telling uh, George Washington not to have any justice in his justice system. That is roughly what it means to the Taliban. Instead, you have to uh, maybe be willing to offer them incentives, but simply try to preserve what you can. I mean, it, maybe they will allow girls to stay in school, at least through high school. Maybe they will allow women to continue to work in some professions, but it's all going to be under their control and with lots of new rules. Just imagine if the, if the, um, if the Republican Party was in charge of every state, what they would do the, to the educational system, the Taliban will right. do the same. And, you know, there, there's, there's no way around it. So why, why yell at them now? At this point, you know, all you can do is more or less plead with them to not be as bad as they could be. Considering the situation we're in, and, and there's a case to be made for taking the approach to Afghanistan that the Obama administration took to Iran, which is to engage with them and to come um, to an agreement and keep moving forward rather than the, the Trump approach to Iran. I know that's hugely simplifying it, but uh, but you can't, when you corner a uh, authoritarian regime or government, it generally doesn't have good consequences um, you know, it, especially for the people living there. Um, anyway, we, we are out of time, Rahul, so much more. I know you and I could talk a lot more. So thank you so much for, for participating in this dialogue. I always appreciate your insight. Great. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Rahul Mahajan. He is the author of Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and is the U.S. foreign policy and empire correspondent for Rising Up. We've been discussing the Afghanistan war. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and watch all of our video interviews. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.